So let's talk about love. This is Advent number three. And the theme, the theme of love, where do you go, where do you start? And more importantly for all of you, where do you stop <laughs> when you're talking about love? That you, you could go on all day. What do, you, what do you leave out? What do you include? Take that off for starters. Um, so Linda had dealt with hope the first week. And then last week we talked about peace. And this week, love. And each, each week, I've mentioned how the, the thing that we're focusing on for each of the, the, the weeks of Advent, each of the themes, uh, next week it's joy. But I have mentioned that the thing that we're focusing on is lacking out there in the world. Out in the world, we don't see an awful lot of hope. People say that this current generation of young people that are growing up are the first generation uh, in, in history or in recorded history that do not expect life to get better, that do not expect to, to have a better life than the previous generation had. And we talked last week about peace and the lack of peace and the amount of conflict that there is out there in relationships, in lives, in families. And love also is drastically absent in our society. From the earliest stage of life, we need love. And the internet is full of articles that, that summarize research into how an atmosphere of love and affection will have a massive role in a child's future. Being born into an environment of love, safety, security, affection, time, input, investment, that, that those early years can have a massive influence on a child's future in terms of their mental health, their emotional health, their physical health, even their intellect, that a loving environment can help with that. And one of the words, when you read some of those articles, some of the, the summary of the research, one of the words that comes up again and again is the word flourish. Talking about young people flourishing and, and growing up into adults who flourish. And that, that word comes from, uh, from flower. Uh, the, the idea of flourishing is that something grows you know, from a horticultural perspective that it grows or develops in a healthy or vigorous way especially as the result of a particularly congenial environment a congenial for a flower or a plant is the right type of compost or soil and it's the right amount of heat and the right amount of light and the right amount of moisture all of those things create an environment in which it can grow in a healthy and vigorous way. It is the same thing for human beings. There is an environment of love that allows people to flourish. And many, many people in society today are not flourishing. And it's because they're not experiencing love. They maybe were deprived of love. And one of the calls to the church that I'll get to later on is our need to provide that flourishing environment of love. The absence of love, I, I looked up just some of the things that are associated again, according to psychologists and researchers and scientists, what are the things that result from a lack of love, particularly in, in childhood? And I have a long list, I'm just going to rattle through. Here are some of the things that will happen in, in teenage years and in adulthood if someone has not been nourished in an atmosphere of love. They're incapable of establishing normal, mature interaction with others. They feel lonely and uncomfortable in social settings. They're self-centered, tend to become discouraged or depressed, uncertain 
and insecure fear or anxiety, the need for frequent reassurance. They feel incapable of coping with life, oversensitive. They need to please others. They're very self-conscious. They feel inferior. They feel inadequate. They feel unloved. They believe they are incapable of loving others or loving God. They feel inadequate due to their physical appearance. That obsession with physical appearance out there in society. How much of that goes back to a lack of love in childhood? Feelings of intellectual incompetence, lack of order, disorganized, paranoid. These are the things that that come out of a life that has not been nourished in love. It all sounds really familiar. I see all those things. I see those things again and again and again, particularly in young people. And Paul would not be surprised at all because Paul wrote his last letter to Timothy. And in in chapter 3, he he gives a list of things that will mark the last days. Now, the last days, I don't believe, is a seven-year period at the end of history. The last days is the entire age from when Jesus rose from the dead, poured out his Spirit, and the church began right through until his glorious appearing. These are the last days. It's a military term that has to do with the time in between the decisive victory being won in a battle and the final consummation of it. And Paul writes to Timothy and says, the last days, this church age will be marked by, and there's a lot of things that he gives in the list in the first five verses of 2 Timothy 3, but one of them, the first one in the list, is that people will be lovers of themselves. And that is an absolute, it is an abhorrent twisting of the ability to love that God has put within us. That instead of it going outwards, we have turned it around and focused it on ourselves. Selfishness is at the root of every relational problem. We were designed to love God. We were designed to live in his love. And, and Paul, Paul Tripp writes that something horrible happened after the fall. A seductive, powerful, and deceptive love replaced the love we were meant to have for God. And that is the love of self. We are designed with the capacity to love and only to flourish when we pour that out and we have turned it in on ourselves. And what Paul Tripp says is required is that someone is required to do what we cannot do for ourselves. Someone needs to come and defeat the love of self, selfishness and self-centeredness, and restore the love of God in our hearts. And so love came down at Christmas. According to John 3.16, God so loved. I don't know whether that means he loved to such a great extent so loved or whether it means he loved in this manner i think it's probably both because john does that a lot of the time god so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life let it sink in again don't fly by the most familiar verse in your bible God's love arrived. God's character did not change that first Christmas. He was always love and he always will be love and he is love. 
And his love is seen throughout the Old Testament. It's not as if he suddenly had a change of tactic towards humanity at the end of the Old Testament. He's always been love and he always will be love. But that love was so manifest whenever his son was given. And if you look at John 3.16 and sort of split it up, there's, there's the first half of the verse. So the, there's 26 words in this translation of it. The first 13 are about God, what God did. And then the last 12 there at the bottom are about what we do, what the response of, of mankind, humanity towards God. But in the middle, the hinge, the heart of the whole thing is Son, Jesus. And John knows his Old Testament and as he writes, it just pours out of him in, in Revelation more than anywhere else. But even here in, in the Gospel of John, the Old Testament just pours out of him. And you can see Isaiah 9.6 coming out in John 3.16. That concept of giving a son. And now the world can see what love looks like. Or can it? Can it? Because as we'll get to towards the end of the message, the responsibility to show this love now rests upon the people of God. And if the world's going to see it, we have to show it. And this, this idea of giving them becomes the eternal benchmark of love. There's a lot of confusion, obviously, out there in culture, in music, and in films, and in books, and all over the place. There's a lot of confusion about what love means. God clears it up. In 1 John chapter 4, God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Here it is. Here's your definition. The songs are good and the movies are good. And but this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Love gives. Love sacrifices. Love chooses to give itself for others. Love is not motivated by feelings. Unless the feeling is the feeling of compassion. That Jesus shows so much in the gospels. It's not motivated by the warm fuzzies of romance or emotion. It is a choice. I am a follower of Jesus. I want to reflect his character to this world. And therefore I choose to love. To give. To sacrifice. We use the word love so much. It, it has lost its meaning in English. I love coffee. Why do I love coffee? I love coffee because I love the smell of it. And I love the taste of it. And I love the warmth of it. And you see my love of coffee. My love of coffee is all about me. <laughs> it's a selfish love. It's all about what I'm getting out of it. And that's the way the word love is used in our culture a lot. We say that we love something because that thing makes us feel good. And when somebody starts a marriage on that basis, that's disastrous. When you just love because of how you are made to feel. Michael Jackson in his wonderful, deep, profound, poetic song, The Way You Make Me Feel. That's the understanding of love out there in culture. 
It's all about the way something or the way someone makes me feel. It is completely out of sync with the love of God that he has defined for us in sending his son. So we've turned love in on ourselves. We've turned it into selfishness. We love the things that make us feel good. Paul picks up on this as well, this aspect of sacrificial love. God demonstrates his love for us. While we were still sinners, undeserving, did nothing to merit it, Christ died for us. Love, sacrifice, giving, action, choice, taking the initiative, not waiting until somebody is worthy to receive love, but choosing to give love. And this love, Paul says, you can build your life on. In Ephesians 3, he uses a couple of illustrations. He first of all says in 3.17 that we would be rooted in love. Do you know what? Paul is 2,000 years ahead of the research on the internet when he says rooted in love. Do you remember my flower? Back we go to the flower. Where is it? There it is. Paul says rooted in love and he's just summarizing this idea of being in a congenial environment. In the environment of love, in the soil of love, there will be growth and development that is healthy and vigorous. Paul is ahead of his time in using that illustration that we be rooted in love. I tell you, church, I am rooted in the love of God. I never, ever doubt it. I know that I'm loved. I know, and I never doubt, and I never think, oh, you couldn't love me anymore because of what I did or what I said or what. Never in any doubt, I am loved. And like last week I said to you, I'm never in any doubt of the fact that I have peace with God. I then sometimes don't get it right in terms of peace in relationships with others. And, and likewise today, sometimes I don't get it right in terms of showing the love to others. But I never doubt the love that God has for me. Never. It is 100% certain I'm rooted in it and I am established in it. Not only do the roots of the plant go down and draw up from that love, the building is built on it. Foundations, firm, secure, won't fall in a storm because it's established in love. And Paul goes on to say that, that we, can't, we can't grasp the dimensions of it, how wide and long and high and deep. Just let it, I know this is a sermon that's just reminding you of what you already know, but let it remind you and let it stir you up. How awesome is the love of God for us? And if you want to experience his love in its fullness, here's a wee phrase in this verse from Ephesians 3, 19, where we, we, Paul is praying for them that they would grasp how wide, long, high and deep is the love of Christ to know the love that surpasses knowledge. To be filled. How, how does that happen? It happens together with the Lord's holy people. You can't do this on your own. You cannot experience the fullness of the love of God in isolation from loving community. You grasp it together with the Lord's holy people. And if you live in isolation and you don't give yourself to loving community, then what you will find is you will have a stunted understanding of the magnitude of the love of Christ. But as you throw yourself into loving community and you be part of that safe place, then you begin to understand more and more of the magnitude of God's love for us. 
So what's our response to that love? That love that came down at Christmas, that love that then sacrificed on the cross. How do we respond? Last week we talked about peace and how we've received God's peace and then the challenge to, to show that peace to others. Likewise, there's, there's a response here to the love of God. And one aspect of the response when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said in Matthew 22, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and your mind. That was his response. That is not going to be the focus of today's message, but that does not mean it's not important. But it's part of the response to to receiving his love is to love him with all our heart, soul, and mind. What I want to focus more on is our love for others. Our love for others. I see coats going on. Aaron, see that wee white thermostat? Can you push the top part of it a few times to try and bring things up a bit? Thank you. Yeah, I want to focus on, on love for others as we sort of wrap this up and bring it home. Jesus said in that wonderful conversation with the, the disciples in the upper room on the night before he was crucified, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. What is new about that? Right from the Old Testament, God has been telling his people to love their neighbor as themselves. So, So how can Jesus say that it's a new command? Because it is an old command. And I think the newness of it is what comes after that. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. And it's not that the command to love is new. It's that the standard is new. He says the same things to husbands in in Ephesians. Paul writes to husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The standard of love is has been set by what Jesus did on the cross, as I have loved you. He loved them in chapter 13 of John by washing their feet. He loved them by serving them. And then he loved them a couple of chapters later by sacrificing. And he says, that's how I've loved you. Now you likewise love one another. You know, sometimes there, there is a verse in 1 John 4, I can't remember exactly what it is, but sometimes it's, it's misquoted where it says that we love him because he first loved us. The word him, H-I-M, is not there. John did not write, we love him because he first loved us. John wrote, we love because he first loved us. It's not just that, you know, you can restrict that to loving God and living in your own wee bubble, just you and God. No, no, it's love for others. We love others others as a response to God's love, first of all, for us. Don Carson, writing on this, says that this new commandment is simple enough for a child to memorize and appreciate, but it's profound enough that the most mature believers are repeatedly embarrassed about how poorly they comprehend it and put it into practice. You ever embarrassed about your lack of love for one another? The times that you get impatient with one another. The things that you say. The joke with a jag. Even in our supposed maturity, we repeatedly mess this up. 
this call to love one another as God has loved us. And the reality is that ever since the Garden of Eden, we sometimes talk about Adam and Eve and and how the rib was taken from Adam to create Eve. And we limit that to marriage. And I think we do a disservice by limiting it to marriage. I think when Adam woke up and his rib was gone, from that moment on, there's a realization, I will never, ever again be complete on my own. And it's not, I believe, simply about marriage. I believe it's about humanity and the fact that on our own we are incomplete. We have been designed to find our completeness as human beings in loving relationships with others. And Adam learned that when that rib was gone and he woke up and Eve was there. So what have we done in response to this this commandment that Jesus gave to love one another as I have loved you? What has the church done? We invented these. Haven't slagged them off in a while, but I'll do it today. Okay? We invented these. Ladies and gentlemen, the pew. The most uncomfortable chair on earth invented by Christians. Almost, in fact, yes, it probably is a full-on right angle there that you would be sitting at in that pew. We invented these hideously uncomfortable seats. And then we set them all pointing in the same direction. Now, which fair enough is the way you're pointing this morning. We, we set them all pointing in one, one direction. So you go in and you sit in the pew and you look at the back of the head of the person that Jesus said, love one another. Yeah? And just to make sure that nobody moved them, we screwed them to the floor. Nobody's budging these pews. Now there's a convenience about those and there's a practicality about those and I understand it, but it also screams that we're missing something. We're missing something. And Jesus said, love one another. And we have found ways of doing church that leave no room, no space for love. Come to our special event You will get to sing and you'll get to hear a speaker and then you go home. And there's no room for love. We're scared almost to leave just space where people can love each other. We had a men's event here on Thursday night. And I'm really quite fussy and pushy about leaving room for love. So there was no guest speaker. uh, There was no program. There was food. And we faced each other and we ate and we talked. And it was class. And then Nigel shared some of his story and it was a blessing. But it wasn't an event. It wasn't a tightly structured program. Do this, do that, do this, go home. There was space to love. There was space for me to listen to a young guy uh, and just, just hear a wee bit about where he's at. And, and he was telling me about his new girlfriend and he obviously wanted to talk and showed me a photograph. And I just loved on him. There's room for that. There's room for love. There's room to hear each other's stories across the table and just hear what's going on. There's room for crack and banter and chat and laughter as well. But I think in the church, a lot of what we do does not leave room for that. We straitjacket the church that there's no space to love each other. Larry Crabb wrote that a spiritual community, a church is full of broken people who turn their chairs toward each other because they know they cannot make it on their own. Love it. If you've never read Larry Crabb, 
worth reading. Turn their chairs toward each other. Face each other. Look in each other's eyes. Listen to each other's stories. Love one another. John says that when we don't do this, when we fail to do this, if we do not love in 1 John 4, whoever does not love does not know God. If our hearts are not overflowing with love and if we're not focused on creating and being part of opportunities to love one another, whether it's sitting in a, in a house with someone or in the church or wherever it is, if we do not create these opportunities to just let love flow between human beings, we don't know God. We're out of sync with his heart. You're all in debt, by the way. Do you know that you're in debt? You're in debt to me. You're all in debt to me. Better put a verse up before we get you worried. Um, Paul says that we have a debt to one another. In Romans 13, 8, Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. Now, I have a mortgage. I sometimes think that when Paul said that these three things will abide, faith, hope, and love, there is a fourth one in my mortgage. It's going to go into eternity as well. All of us pretty much are in debt. If you've got yourself you know, through life without debt, fair play to you. Most of us can't buy a house without debt and getting a mortgage. But someday it will be paid off. Glorious day. <laughs> you know? I don't know what I'll do, but I'll be dancing in the streets. Someday it will be gone and the debt will be paid. And the debt of our sin has been paid by Jesus. But there's still a debt that we owe that we can never pay. And we'll never be able to say, I have fulfilled my debt. The debt, Paul says, is to love one another. It's like if I give Ashley 20 quid and say, Ashley, when you see somebody later on, will you pass that on to them? That 20 quid does not belong to Ashley. It belongs to the person that I have assigned to receive it. Yes? And Ashley is now in debt to that person until he gives them the 20 pound that is rightfully theirs. And God has placed his love in our hearts to show that love to others. And we are indebted to one another. We owe a debt to each other to to show that love to each other. Paul says you'll never be done paying it. You keep on paying it. You're not paying it because you you, you have to do it to earn something with God. It's the outcome of receiving God's love and being part of the loving community. There is a debt of love that we need to keep on giving to one another. And I wonder when, when John wrote the words of Jesus in Revelation 2, Jesus dictates seven letters to seven churches and he says to the church at Ephesus I hold this against you you have forsaken the love you had at first by default and because we haven't maybe thought about it that much we assume that the first love is our love for Jesus I remember listening to Gordon Fee teaching on Revelation years ago and he said if you look at John's writings and look at, at you know, particularly 1 John, which was written at the same time probably as Revelation, roughly, the love that he's obsessed with is not our love for Jesus, not to diminish that. It's our love for each other. And, and Fee suggested that when, when Jesus says, you forget, you've forsaken your first love, it's not you've forsaken your love for me. He's saying you've forsaken your love for one another. You're not prioritizing that enough. 
You all love Jesus. All of you. <laughs> and that's obvious. But do we love one another? Or, or do we get to the point in relationships where we sort of take each other for granted a wee bit and we don't invest in each other and listen to each other? Is that the first love that we have forsaken? The command that Jesus gave, love one another as I have loved you. Are we forsaking that? Are we loving him well, but not loving one another? Are we too busy to take time to turn our chairs towards each other? And as a close, we are to let the world see this love. It's not just a wee happy club of Christians all loving on one another. The world needs to see it because Jesus says that's how the world will know that you're mine. Not by how good the music is, how good the preaching is, how snazzy the events are, all of those things. He says the way that the world will know that you're mine, you're my disciples, you're my followers, is that you love one another. And do we need to just raise that way up the priority list? Way up the priority list. And, and set aside the other things that we sometimes invest time and energy in in the, in the life of church and focus on loving one another and creating opportunities and sitting around tables just loving one another with no other agenda other than to be together. God describes himself in Deuteronomy 10 as, as one who loves the stranger at the bottom of the screen there. He loves the stranger, provides them food and clothing. And he goes on to say, you also shall love the stranger. One of the things that marks the people of God is that we have a love for the stranger. People we don't have a relationship with, people who don't maybe expect to receive love. We were at the swimming pool yesterday and in Banbridge and standing just at the, at the showers beside the pool afterwards, there was, a, there was a wee kid, a wee girl, and she was singing her heart out, bless her. She was only a wee tote, and she was singing, Feed the world, let them know it's Christmas time. <laughs> and it sounded so sweet. And, and that, that idea of letting people know it's Christmas time, in other words, letting them know that God loves them, this is such an opportunity in the year to show love in a tangible way to people who probably don't receive much love. If all we do is events and all we do is, is uh, put stuff on but do not have love, Paul says at the start of 1 Corinthians 13, he says it three times just to drive it home. If I do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. I don't care what spiritual gifts a person may have if they don't have love. They're just noise. And those are irritating noises and I wonder does the church irritate society by making lots of noise without any love putting leaflets through people's doors and then the dog starts barking and people just get angry who are you you're gone in the darkness you've put a track through my door and you've left the estate before I could even get up and get it you're you're not showing me love it's so confusing you're putting this this words on a bit of paper through my door, but you've no interest in a relationship and you've no interest in loving me. If I don't have love, I'm just a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I don't have love, I am nothing. If I don't have love, I gain nothing. We must prioritize love if the world is to see Jesus. I've been listening to a guy lately called Gordon Smith talking about conversion. 
brilliantly. Uh, he's uh, one of the lecturers at, at Regent College in Vancouver. And I was listening to it again last night. He said, listen carefully. As, as, you, as you think about the world out there, about those who are lost, and about how we sometimes try to bring them to Jesus by getting them to attend something or, or other. He says, conversion is a journey and it is necessarily located within faith communities. It is necessarily located within faith communities. You cannot become converted out there on your own. Conversion by its very nature is an experience that is located within the life and witness of the church. When you become associated with us, the church, you belong to a faith community. And as you do, you learn the language of faith and you begin to realize that there is one who loves you. There is a benevolent Lord of the universe who actually cares for you. And we are going to embody that love. How will the, the people who are sort of on the fringe of our community here, who, who come in and out, come and go, and you maybe see them and don't see them for a few weeks, and then they maybe come in again. There, there are a few, a few folks around the town who do that. How are they going to know that God loves them? Whenever they come in here and we embody the love of God, they will not experience it without us. I sometimes think that to pray for somebody to know the love of God I think if you were to pray that and say, Lord, I, I ask that you would show your love to such and such, I think God would say back to you, I ask that you would show my love to such and such. You get me? We want to, we want to sort of go to a prayer meeting and pray for God to show his love to, to, to whoever and then go home and put the TV on and eat a bag of crisps and forget about it. Whereas God would say, no, no, you are the agents of my love. You are my body. You're, you as a community embody that love and as people come in and gradually belong in that community, they, they experience the love of God, not through some strange event, not that God can't supernaturally reveal his love to people, of course he can, but the vast majority of times they're going to experience it in community and over a journey, a period of time, they're going to realize God is love. Look at these people and how they love each other and how they love me. Lovely verse, and with this I'm finished. In 2 Samuel 9, it's the story of the wonderful Mephibosheth. <laughs> he's, uh, he's lame and he's the descendant of Saul, son of Jonathan. And David says, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? I love this. I love the way it's worded. Is there anyone to whom I can show God's kindness? We want to leave that middle bit that I can show. We sort of want to leave that out. We want to pray that somebody will experience God's kindness. And let me tell you that word kindness, that's a great Hebrew word, hesed. King James Version translates it loving kindness and the slightly more modern versions would say steadfast love. See, when you read the Psalms about God's steadfast love, that's hesed. And what we want to do is we want, we're like God, that little family down the street, that, um, that guy that I'm aware of who's struggling or whatever. God, show your loving kindness, your steadfast love to that person. And God all the time, I think is just saying, no, you do it. You show them my steadfast love. 
you go and pour it out on them. You bring them into community. You bring them to a table where they can be part of the family. You do it. It's not, it's not wrong to pray for God's love to be experienced, but come on. We're the body of Christ, which means we get up and go and do it with our hands and feet. Is there anyone to whom I can show the steadfast love of God? And I want to I just leave that with you as a prayer. And in fact, I want to take 30 seconds now and just pray it. And invite the Holy Spirit to show you right now at this time of year when we are generous and loving. Is there anyone that he wants you to go and show love to? Is, it, you know, is anybody up for a bit of outrageous generosity? outrageous anonymous generosity where you know somebody out there is struggling maybe financially and Christmas is really difficult because because their expectations and just to put a few 20 pound notes in an envelope and slip it through the door and turn and run (laughs) that's love and just write on that you're loved you're loved anybody up for, for doing things like that just quietly no one else knows a thing about it and you sit down to your Christmas dinner or whatever and you just you feel the joy of, of having been God's agent and brought some love to somebody else. So as iron comes, I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit will open our hearts and give us maybe an assignment for the next week where we can go and 